Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett, co-authors of The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. The topic, Moving Our Society from Me to We. Today's conversation is brought to you by Grace Communion Seminary. Whether you want to pursue a master's degree for pastoral work or simply take a few classes, Grace Communion Seminary offers quality, accredited, graduate-level classes all online. Students can gain a Master of Pastoral Studies, a Master of Theological Studies, or a Master of Divinity. Their classes are affordable, flexible, and suitable for men and women with full-time jobs. Come explore Grace Communion Seminary by visiting gcs.edu nae. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with two very special guests, Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney-Garrett. Dr. Putnam is a research professor of public policy at Harvard University. He received the highest honor in political science, the Skype Prize. And as well, President Barack Obama awarded Dr. Putnam the National Humanities Medal in 2013. He has 16 honorary degrees from eight countries. He has written 15 books, including the latest book he co-authored with Shailen Romney Garrett, The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Shailen's writing and research has been featured in a number of outlets. Her portraits of religious communities across the United States were included in the book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, which won Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson Award for Best Political Science Book of 2010 and 2011. She and her husband co-founded Think Unlimited, a nonprofit venture working to catalyze social innovation in the Middle East. Their knowledge, their research, it's so informative, inspirational for evangelicals seeking to improve the boundaries of political, social, economic, and cultural life in our country. Thank you both so much for joining us in today's conversation. Thanks, Walter. It's great for us to be here. Thank you. So let's begin with the big picture. What were you trying to accomplish in the book, The Upswing? Our book, The Upswing, shows that America is in a pickle, as my mom used to say. Um, America today is at a great, in a, in a period of great political polarization and in a period of great economic inequality and in a period of enormous social isolation and social segmentation, fragmentation, and in a period of cultural self-centeredness, almost cultural narcissism. We're very focused on the I rather than the we. And we show in the book and discuss in the book how America has been in a very similar situation previously. About 125 years ago, America also was in a period of, of remarkably like our own, a period of great polarization and great inequality and great social fragmentation and great self-centeredness. And that and we, we show in the book that we nevertheless, Americans at that point pivoted and turned away from that I 
centered eye focused society and culture and morality toward a more we centered, more we focused culture and morality, more toward America, more equal, less polarized and so on. And finally, we show that even American evangelical Protestants played a crucial role in that pivot away from a, an I society toward a we society. So we think, of course, the book is not just written for evangelicals, it's written for all Americans, especially young Americans, but we do think our message ought to resonate with American evangelicals because what we're, in a way, what we're trying to show is, you know, it's you guys, the last time we were in this pickle, you guys helped save us. And please do so again. That's, that's I think, the relevant portion of our message. Well, thank you for that overview. Uh, I can't get around the fact, though, that you are describing an incredibly difficult moment in history. And it's an honest, a piercing assessment. So the big question, uh, and I'm going to ask you, Shailen, is how precisely did we get into this pickle? What caused our decline over the last half century? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, I think if we could identify the main driver of this multifaceted crisis, maybe we could have a silver bullet to know how to reverse it. And so that's a really tough question to answer. And there are a lot of books that actually attempt to answer that question by looking only at the last half century, 70 years or so, during which in the data that we present in the book, we show that we've been in this downward slide on all of these measures that Bob has indicated. And, and yet it's hard to quite put a point on how to explain that downward slide. And so instead, the focus of our book is actually to ask the question, well, how did we get out of this pickle once before? Because if we, if we know sort of what caused the upswing, that might actually, that what caused the upswing last time, that might actually give us more clues as to how to get out of this multifaceted crisis than it would to understand what caused the downturn. Does that make sense? Um, and so, so when we look at those lessons from the progressive era, which is this moment when our last Gilded Age gave way to sort of an upturn toward equality, toward political comedy, toward social cohesion, and toward a, a more solidaristic culture, what we see is actually that there was a vast moral awakening that precipitated a lot of the more political and economic changes that pulled us up out of that mess. And that's why Bob says that this is that we sort of look to American evangelicals because that moral awakening um, appears to have been led by theologians, actually, by Christians who revisited their own theology and said, wait a minute, the sort of version of Christianity that we are proposing and that we are promoting is a highly individualistic version of the gospels. But these preachers who were part of a movement called the social gospel movement, they looked at the scriptures and said, what we see here is solidarity. We see messages about taking care of the most vulnerable. We see messages about taking care of the stranger and about building a broader we. Those are the messages that we need to emphasize both for Christianity and for America as a whole. And so what started as the social gospel movement um, came to really replace what at the time was the reigning cultural ethos, which was social Darwinism, the idea that, you know, the survival of the fittest, which Charles Darwin had articulated as a description of the natural world, was a great way to organize society as well. 
these theologians came in and said, wait a minute, this is a betrayal not only of our foundational values as a country, but of our foundational values as religious people, and we need to change that narrative. They did so within Christianity, and that took hold in the broader culture, which actually helped drive forward this multifaceted upswing. And so that, you know, upswing lasted for two thirds of the 20th century, and then did a backflip in the 1960s. And if I were to answer your question about what caused that flip from we to I, the simple question is that it had a lot to do with race. It had a lot to do with the fact that the people driving the upswing sort of kicked down the road, the real heart work of racial reconciliation and a true broadening of the we to include all Americans. And that undone work proved to be part of the unraveling of the upswing. This, this is so fascinating. You're giving a, a huge um, encapsulation of American history and a lot of themes are being brought in. Talk about upswing and downswing, individualism, solidarity. Um, I just want to make sure that we're all uh, clear on things. And I want to come back to this notion of a I, we, I curve. And uh, can you explain that um, as perhaps a way to tie all the things that we up to this point have been talking about? Sure. Um, Walter, as you know, um, part of the book is actually quite statistical. And um, uh, so far I've been trying to soft pedal the more quantitative parts of the work to kind of get to the, you know, the larger picture, but the data are what they are, lots and lots and lots of data. And what the data show is, let's take for example, political polarization. The data show that in the end of the 19th century, roughly 1890, 1900 say, America was extremely polarized politically. We had a very tribal politics. Nobody cooperated across party lines. Most people were really upset about most ordinary people were upset and they were looking for maybe even a third party or something. But then in the early years of the 20th century, around 1910, roughly speaking, there began to be some cooperation across party lines. Initially not very big, but that grew steadily from, from you know, let's say roughly 1910 <clears throat> up through the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and into the 60s, Americans increasingly, every year there was more cross-party collaboration among people of different parties, um, both at the level of Congress and in the level of you know, ordinary folks. <clears throat> but then beginning in the 1960s, this is what uh, Shannon earlier called a backflip, suddenly that trend reversed and people began doing less cooperation across party lines and politics became more and more polarized. It became steadily more polarized in the 70s and then in the 80s and then in the 90s and then into this century. And then every year in this century, we've gotten more and more polarized. So now everybody knows this, listen to this conversation. We're now in an extremely polarized period. What fewer people know is this period politically is just like the period 125 years ago when people were also very polarized. So it's a one big curve from a focus on party polarization and political anger to a more cooperative politics and then back down to a more antagonistic politics. Now you do the same, you see, if you look at data on economic inequality, for example, you see the same trend. America at the beginning of the, uh, at the end of the 19th century was called the Gilded Age because there was a big gap between rich and poor. 
the the robber barons on the Upper East Side of New York uh, and and Upper East Side of Manhattan and the and the poor huddled immigrants at the Lower East Side big gap uh, in economic equality. But then it's, as the 20th century opened in the early years of the 20th century, that gap began to narrow a little bit, and America steadily became for the next 60 years almost 70 years steadily more and more equal. The gap between rich and poor steadily narrowed from you know, 1910, 1920, 1930, all the way up to the middle 60s, into the late 60s, and then suddenly this bat flip. And beginning then in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, America became steadily less equal. Every year, the gap between rich and poor grew. And every Americans, I mean, all of us know that. We And we know that it's been growing almost every year, even right now, even during the the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic, the gap between rich and poor has been steadily growing. And all we've shown is that was we we're back now where we were 125 years ago with as big a gap between rich and poor on the you know on in New York City on Manhattan as there was 125 years ago. We retraced this this big inverted U curve. And the same thing is true for social connections. If you use measures, look at lots of measures of family structure how well you get along with your neighbors, how much you trust other people, how involved you are in community activities and organizations and so on. We began very socially fragmented in the, at the end of the 19th century, we steadily became in, it, there was a turning point around 1910, we steadily became more and more connected. More people got married, more people had kids, more people were going to church, more people were involved in community projects, more people trusting other people steadily upwards until in the middle 60s, same turning point, backflip. We started going the other direction, and you can see this in church membership. It shows up in church membership. It shows up in, in, um, in you know how much people trust each other, how much they go to the PTA, how much they know their neighbors, and so on. Down, and now we're back down in a similar. We're back down in the same segregated. I don't mean just segregated racially, but I mean socially um, isolated fragments as we were again. And the same thing is true in culture. This focus, the beginning of the century. Uh, on uh, I, Shailene just talked about that, the, the social Darwinism, then there's this pivot in the early years of the 20th century, and we gradually become more and more focused on what we have in common and, and how we can get along and, and how we're you know, less and less focused on what's in it for me and more focused on what we can do together. And then again, there's that same backflip in the middle 60s, back down to where we are right now. So that's, that's the statistics, statistical and we are sort of summarizing that by saying, in the beginning of this period, very much focus on I, on what's in it for me, on my income, on my policy views, my politics, um, you know, me, me, me. Middle of the period, we were much more focused on we. We were more equal, we were more connected, we were more politically cooperative. And then at the end of the, at the now, where we are right now, we're back where we began before. That's the, that's the empirical basis for saying we used to be once upon a time were an I and it was terrible. America was in an awful shape 100, 125 years ago, really awful shape because we were so focused on I. We made steady progress then when we did this, this pivot in the beginning of the 20th century and, and we became you know, more and more a we. And everybody benefited, everybody benefited from that. Even, even racial minorities, though not as much as they should have. And now we're back down to, to this very unfortunate eye focus. Both of you have alluded to this notion um, that our racial history 
uh, complicates uh, the I-we-I curve and maybe a deferred um, addressing of this issue. Um, so I want to pull that piece out and ask you more directly, um, what do you mean by that? What, what is the complicating nature of, um, uh, of race in America? Sure. So um, it's really hard to talk about, as Bob just outlined, the first two thirds of the 20th century as being this increasingly we moment in American history where we're sort of finding our solidarity and coming together. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't that the same period that we were dealing with Jim Crow and violent exclusionary measures along the lines of race, um, not just with Black Americans, but, but people of color in various different ways, right? Um, so how does that story of the of the violent and difficult racial history of America square with this story of the I, we, I century? Um, and the answer to that is is a bit long and complex because, again, this is a very data-based book, and so we're looking at not just sort of the historical story of race in America, but we're looking at what the data says about the trends toward racial equality and inclusion, when they happened, how fast they happened, and what how that squares with the turning points in the IWI story. Um, and, and what we see is that, you know, life was of course extraordinarily bleak for people of color at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but there's often this assumption, particularly amongst white Americans, that there was absolutely no change at all that there was really no movement toward equality until the lightning bolt changes of the 1960s when we have Martin Luther King and, and we have the, the, the passage of the Civil Rights Acts, right? Um, and that story turns out to be true on some measures, particularly measures related to inclusion versus exclusion. So the longstanding lack of political representation for Black Americans, um, lack of, of entry, you know, the inability to enter professional schools and, and enter the professions. Um, residential segregation, for example, is another one where that, that sort of model of the 20th century is accurate. But when you look at material equality, so, and, and material equality is a really important stuff, like um, the relative earnings between the races or uh, wealth measures, home ownership, even things like health, for example, um, infant mortality rates or life expectancy. Uh, we're talking also about educational outcomes included in these measures of material equality. What we see is a surprising, um, sur again, surprising to white Americans, not necessarily to black Americans because they lived this story, right? But a lot of progress was actually made. The fastest, most dramatic progress toward material equality between the races was made during the wee decades, was actually made during the first two thirds of the 20th century, which is a surprising story. That's surprise number one. But when you also look at this data for the full century, right in that moment, that 19, mid 1960s moment, when we finally widened the we enough to pass the civil rights acts, you would have expected what was already an upward trend toward material equality between the races to have it continued or accelerated. Right? And I think sometimes we assume that that's what happened. But on the contrary, the data shows quite clearly that in that mid 60s, early 70s moment, we entered what we call in the book a foot off the gas period, a period when we really stopped making progress toward material equality between Black and white Americans. Um, and, and in many cases, we reversed progress. So today, home ownership amongst Black Americans is lower than it was in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act passed. There are fewer Black Americans attending college relative to white Americans than there were in the 1970s. So there's been a huge um, stagnation 
even reversal of progress in the wake of the civil rights movement, which is a story that I don't think most Ameri white Americans have fully taken on and is really the underlying story behind the outcry of anger and frustration that we're seeing from black communities who are saying, hey, what happened to the promise of the civil rights movement? Yes, we've done better on inclusion and individual rights, but we've done way worse on measures of material equality, which have a lot to do with the day-to-day -day lived experience for, for people in this country, right? And so what this story shows, just briefly, is that there's a lot more work to do in making good on the promises of the we, but also that that the I decades, America's I decades, this last 50 to 70 years, have not been very hospitable toward material progress in terms of racial equality. So that begs the question, you know, maybe we need to get down to some more foundational concepts about that narcissism versus solidarity, selfishness versus taking care of the most vulnerable. Maybe some of those moral and cultural um, beliefs and underpinnings need to be addressed first uh, in order for us to really make durable and lasting progress on these on these issues of racial reconciliation and equality and inclusion. You've characterized such a complex situation, um, but with actual great clarity. Um, and you've alluded to the, the kind of moral leadership provided by evangelicals, by theologians, um, by the social implications of the gospel as being very pivotal at a time of great individualism and polarization. So um, how could we translate that to some action now? I mean, what does it mean for leaders today to be a part of a potential upswing? Well, well let me just uh, say three short things about it that are relevant based on our research, research that Shailen and I have both done over the last uh, 10 years or so. First of all, um, we've shown in an earlier book called American Grace that I know you know, we've shown what probably most evangelicals believe anyhow, but we've shown it in an irrefutable way that being involved in a religious congregation, not just evangelicals, but being involved in any religious congregation makes people nicer. That's my shorthand for saying, if you get involved in a religious uh, organization, um, you that turns out to cause you to be more generous and not just more generous in the offering plate, but more generous to any to secular causes also to volunteer more, but not just to volunteer to usher, but to volunteer, you know, to lead the little league or whatever and, or to help old ladies across the street. I mean, seriously, it turns out religion is really good. Maybe religion may be good for the soul, but it also in general makes people more generous and more, we focused or, or others focused. Um, and secondly, as we've already said, um, in this new book, we show that evangelical Protestants played a crucial role in igniting a, decades and decades of American progress, economically, socially, politically, culturally. But, and I have to say, this is the third part of our message, and it comes out of also comes out of, out of our research. Um, religion also can be very divisive. Religion can be can encourage um, intolerance. Doesn't always, but can do that, and can encourage a kind of in-group focus, not an out-group focus. 
um, and can actually can encourage hostility towards outgroups. In other words, just as religion can be a powerful force for inclusion, it can be a powerful force, force for exclusion and pushing against the stranger. In my view, I'm not a Christian actually, I'm a Jew, but the, in my view, the, the idea of welcoming the stranger, which is actually common to both Christianity and Judaism, is core, that's really core of our, of our beliefs. And yet it's hard to square that with the views of some, some part of the evangelical community today on the issue of immigration, for example. I mean, welcoming the stranger, that ought to be. So what am I, I don't, I'm not making a cheap shot against evangelicals. I'm asking, say, I'm calling it the challenge for evangelicals, it seems to me, is to live up to the, to practice what you're preaching. That is to practice welcoming the stranger, not just saying, you know, Christianity welcomes the stranger. Um, that's the harsh truth. That's the harsh part of the truth. It's a challenge. Evangelicals, evangelical Americans today have it within their power to trigger and to be an important force toward improving America for all Americans. That's within your power. But you also have the challenge that this is a powerful tool that you represent. And if it's used for bad, you can, you could, some evangelicals at least could set us back a long way. I hope that's not an offensive message, uh, Walter. I don't mean it that way in, in the slightest. I'm trying to challenge evangelicals to live up to the best of your own beliefs and your own traditions. No, that's a word of uh, concern, invitation, exhortation. I, I think it's a good word that we need to hear received from, you know, a, a friendly party, but a concerned party. So thank you. Um, what will it take us to get out of that kind of tribalism or in internal focus. Um, Shailen, you know, this notion of emotional allegiances that are tribal in nature, um, how does that work and how do we combat that? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure what we're seeing is um, a, a sort of, I guess I would put it as a religifying of our political identities across the board, right? This is not just religious people who are doing this. This is all Americans who are actually um, beginning to identify their political affiliation as their primary identity, which is a new thing, right? Um, for example, you know, in the 19, in mid-century America, um, if you, your son or daughter was going to get married, one of the main concerns would be, you know, what religion is that other person um, that this, that the, that my son or daughter wants to marry, right? And, and inter-religious sort of marriage was a real, you know, sticking point at that phase in American history. Um, when you ask the similar sorts of questions today, how would you feel if your son or daughter married um, not someone of a different religion, but someone of a different political affiliation. The numbers are off the charts for how concerned people are about that today. That's a that's a new phenomenon. That's actually a part of this eye-focused phenomenon. But but it's odd that we've we've sort of shifted to what our primary focus is in terms of thinking about our in-group and our identity to make it to make it more um, salient. 
our, our political identities, then maybe we have experienced them to be in the past. And so that's a huge part of it. I think that, that, that we need to do some heart work and some inner work on asking ourselves, what is the source of our primary and foundational values? In the words of one of these social gospelers, uh, Washington Gladden, he challenged people to revisit their primary conceptions. What type of men and women are they going to show up as in the world and in society in America as citizens? Um, are we gonna show our primary conceptions that we're a Republican or we're a Democrat? Or are our primary conceptions somewhere beneath that? And I think if we can do, and in particular your question earlier about what leaders can do, if leaders can lead people through the inner work and the heart work to remind them of what their primary conceptions are, that maybe we've layered these political conceptions on top of some primary conceptions that we've forgotten, if we can get down to that layer, we can not only free ourselves of these deeply emotional attachments we've developed to our politics, but we can also get down to the place where we can start to do some of that racial reconciliation that we have put off for so long in this country. So I think there's a lot of room for leadership in religious congregations around getting into those hard conversations. You're saying something that preaches really well. I mean, there's such a strong <laughs> emphasis within the, the Bible and the New Testament in particular that evangelicals often really pick up on of our identity in Christ as being right. the primary feature of who we are as followers of Jesus. Um, that's a good word. So you've given us... Um, pretty searing assessments of the state of affairs uh, that at the same time, while being honest and probing, um, are not bleak in the sense of being without hope. You've also instilled this sense that we've been here before and we got out of this and it's possible to do again. But I'm going to ask you, do you actually see grounds for that hope right now? I mean, what, what actually is giving you hope that we are either in a process of an upswing or truly have the potential uh, of this upswing? I think both of us want to respond uh, to that, Walter, if we can. Um, to begin with, I'm sorry, I'm going to use another word that will sound a little academic. The word is agency. But what that means is it's in our power to change things. We are not the victims of history. We are not condemned to just follow whatever trends are happening in society. The people in this earlier period that we've been talking about, this period when America did change, they faced a choice. And part it was a, in large part, it was a moral choice. Am I just gonna go along with the way things are going, drift along the way things are going now? Or Am I going to reach out and actually try to change the course that we're on? And the, you know, the tempting answer, it's a tempting answer for a lot of social scientists who are pretty secular, but it's a tempting answer for a lot of people is to think, well, no, I'm just going to drift along here. And hey, I couldn't, I couldn't change things. It's a kind of a, you know, it could be quite cynical or at least pessimistic outlook that I, nothing I can do to change things. Our data show that is false. That is, people can change things. Those people did change things. That is, individual people in that period 
including a lot of preachers, by acting together, changed the course of American history for a long time, for decades. And similarly now, it's within our power. This is a choice we now face, all of us, you know, evangelicals, Christians, non-Christians, uh, you know, non-believers, we all face this choice right now. And especially young people face this choice. They didn't cause this problem. I didn't cause this problem. But, and this is what the data show, I can fix, I can help fix it. I can begin to make, have, lead the country or to contribute to the country going through a pivot back to a better, a better America. That's not determined. It's not determined by technology. It's not because of the Industrial Revolution. It's not because of the internet. It's not because of, you know, the power of history or whatever. We can change things. And that is a, I think, I'm not an evangelical preacher, but I think that is something that might preach well. We can do this. You and I together can, can change the course of, of the society in which we live. But Shayla, Shayla, you'll have to say more about hope and optimism and where we might go from here. Well, what makes me optimistic is that we're seeing more and more a putting of moral language around political issues, right? I, I look at the Reverend William Barber leading moral marches on Washington. I look at um, Greta Thunberg calling climate change a moral issue, a stewardship of the earth issue. You know, um, I, I think that... Um, the more that we gain comfort with putting moral language around our social and political problems, the more we're going to be able to find those foundational solutions that are going to propel us forward rather than being distracted by all of the um, policy, the debates on the surface, if that makes sense. And so I, I do feel that there is some uh, hope there. And I think it's hopeful that those moral voices are very young right? Another thing that we showed in American Grace is that, and this is true of my own faith, which is the Mormon church, you know, there's a huge falling off of young people from religion today, largely because of the, the sort of unsavory feelings they have about the coupling of politics with religion. And so young people are coming into the scene in my faith and saying, maybe there's a realignment that we need to think about here in terms of how we speak about politics. And maybe we need to speak about political issues in these more foundational moral terms. And I find that to be a really hopeful sign within my own faith and within the broader American community that we're getting more comfortable with calling these things what they are, which is moral issues. And when we can get down to that language, I think we can find a different sort of motivation to come together uh, to, to create change that appeals to a wide swath of Americans. That message that um, young people can change history is in some sense the most optimistic message in our book. Not just that young people have an obligation, I think they do have a moral, I think we all have a moral obligation, but the young people have a special capacity to change the course of history. And um, yeah, I, I know that, I know the hist enough about the history of evangelicalism to know that the, the word social gospel is itself sometimes a uh, of uh, you know a red flag, and so I don't want to have your audience get too um, caught up on that language. The point we want to make is, at the core, as I understand it, but more important, as many evangelicals understand, at the core of the good news is not just good news for my personal salvation, but 
is our obligation to care for one another. That's not a distraction. That's at the core of the mission. And it, you might think it's more difficult. We're never going to agree on, on values. Let's at least see if we can hack out some political compromise now. And our message is the reverse. If we begin with the core values, because I think if it turns out, I think it turns out if we look at our core values, actually we are all pretty much in agreement about our obligations to other people. It's a basic golden rule. That's not controversial. If we can get down to that kind of agreement on core moral issues, then I think the political issues would actually turn out to be easier after that than before that. I don't know if that makes sense, Walter. Mm, it does. And you've not only given us, both of you, information, but you've given us a call, a call to transformative engagement. And I think that's a very powerful note to bring our conversation to a close. Our guests on today's conversation have, have been Robert Putnam and Shaylin Romney Garrett. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Bob and Shaylin. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.